Uh, if we haven't met before, my name's Austin. I get to serve here as one of our lead pastors. If it's your first time here, we're so glad to have you. We hope that you feel loved, welcomed, and wanted, that you fit right in and make yourself at home here at Vista. Today, we're in the third week of our series called Good News for Anxious Christians. Uh, the series is built upon a very simple but important biblical premise, biblical principle. Namely, faith does not make us anxious. Faith does not make us anxious. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying that Christians can't be anxious. Obviously, we can be. A lot of the time, we are. I've got some anxiety this morning about some things going on in my life. Uh, Anxiety is an inevitable part of living in a fallen world, right? So that's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that when it is our faith that is the primary thing that makes us anxious in a fallen world, then something has gone terribly wrong because faith heals anxiety. It doesn't create it. And so what we're doing in this series is is I'm basically talking to you about some things that that I hope it sounds like good news to you. I'm talking to you about some burdens that you probably think that Jesus has asked you to carry that Jesus has not actually asked you to carry. I'm talking to you about some things that you probably think that you have to do, some things you probably think that you have to be that you don't actually have to do, that you don't actually have to be. Uh, In the first week, I told you that you don't have to be certain. Last week, we talked about how you don't have to find God's will for your life. Scripture is very clear that it's already been revealed. Man, there's nothing to find. You can obey or disobey, but you don't need to find it because it's already been revealed. And now today we're going to talk a little bit about why you don't have to change the world. We're going to start with a very relevant anecdote by an author who I really like named Andy Crouch. So he's writing a book a few years ago. He did a little bit of research and he discovered that, um, gosh, what was it? Yeah, over the past 100 years, so since about 1900, there have been about 1,700 books written about changing the world. Okay, so every year for the last 100 years, we are writing and reading around 100 books a year about changing the world. Seems to be something we're very fascinated by. And yet before 1900, I want you to guess how many books were written about changing the world. Well... So far as he could tell, the answer was zero. Just nobody really wrote books about changing the world. So in other words, before 1900, nobody was writing and reading books about changing the world. But now everybody is obsessively writing and reading books about changing the world. Because we modern people are obsessed with this idea that it is our responsibility to change the world. And in a lot of ways, this makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, think about it. The, uh, the caveman, okay, your caveman ancestor whose most advanced piece of technology was the rock that he used as a pillow and then doubled as a projectile that he used to kill squirrels for dinner. This was not a man who was prone to sitting around in existential angst and anxiety worrying about his responsibility to change the world, right? Can you imagine having a conversation with your great-great-uncle caveman? You're like, uncle, great-uncle Grook, um, do you ever think about like... What you're going to do to change the world, Grug? What are you going to do to change the world, Grug? How do you think Grug would respond? Squirrels, belly, yum. You're like, Grug, stop thinking about your belly, man. There's more important things. So how are you going to change the world, Grug? Two squirrels, belly, yum, right? I think that's how the conversation with Grug would go. And it's understandable, though, that it's a little bit different for us now because now we've we've got all this free time on our hands because all of our basic needs are met. When's the last time you made your own butter? You went to the well to get your own water, right? We've got all of our basic needs met, so we've got all this time on our hands. And technology has seemingly put the ability to change the world right within our grasp. It makes sense that we now feel this huge obligation to change the world. It makes sense 
comes from a very sincere place. But it's still a really, really bad and unbiblical idea. Because not only do you not have to change the world, but you shouldn't try, and you really just can't. We're going to explore this biblically. If you've got your Bibles, turn to 1 Thessalonians 4. As we do, I'm going to set the scene. Give us a bit of context. 1 Thessalonians is a letter that Paul has written to this church that existed in the ancient city of Thessalonica. And unlike so many of the churches that Paul wrote letters to, it appears that this is actually a pretty healthy church, which is kind of refreshing if you've read most of Paul's letters. They were doing a lot of things right. In fact, in chapter 1, in the opening of the letter, Paul goes so far as to say this. This is 1 Thessalonians 1.8. He says, For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. Now, in typical Paul the preacher fashion, the fact that he says that he doesn't need to say anything to them does not prevent him from proceeding to say a great many things to them. Have you ever noticed this about Paul? He's like, Y'all are so great, I don't need to say anything to you. But I got this scroll in front of me, so I'm going to write you this 16-page-long letter that I expect you to read, okay? That's what Paul does here. He starts off the letter by telling them how awesome they are, goes on to tell them that their faith is so powerful that it has spread all over the world. It has gone forth in every place. Probably a little bit of preacher hyperbole here, but at minimum, it is clear that this is a church of big, powerful, influential faith. Which makes what he says here in 1 Thessalonians 4 so interesting and surprising. All right, 1 Thessalonians 4, we're going to read verses 9 through 12. Paul says, Now as to the love of the brethren, of the brothers and sisters, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers and sisters, to excel still more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your own hands just as we commanded you so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. So in 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul once again starts out by saying that he doesn't really need to tell these people anything because they're so good about loving one another. But once again, he just can't help himself and so he decides he's going to talk a little bit more. You'll notice that this is a pattern of Paul. So he'll say, I don't need to tell you anything but while we're here, I'm going to go ahead and write you a few things. He says, you're doing a great job loving each other. I want you to excel still more. But it's what he says in verse 11 that's so interesting. He says, make it your ambition to live a quiet life. This phrase, make it your ambition, it comes from the Greek word philotimistai, which generally meant to strive after, to aspire, to passionately pursue. But it also had a more specific meaning related to seeking after social honor, status, and prestige through one's good social works. This was a very common practice in the ancient Greco-Roman world, wherein it was assumed that you needed to be kind of socially ambitious, right? You needed to try to work to build up your social reputation. And one of the best ways to do this was for you to be very loud about the good things that you were doing for others. And I guess this is not just the ancient Greco-Roman world, huh? And so Paul uses this word, philotimistai, that's loaded with these very loud and bold assertions about living a, a loud and bold life that makes people take notice, that changes things. But then Paul follows that fastball up with a curveball when he says, make it your ambition to do what? Make it your ambition to live a quiet 
life. So take all that drive and juice and energy, and I want you to get passionately ambitious about living a quiet life. I am tempted to just put that sentence up on the screen and let us meditate on it in silence for the next 15 minutes. But like Paul, I don't know how to shut up sometimes, so I want to talk about it a little bit more. While I'm here, while I'm up here. Because I don't know that I have come across a more challenging and liberating sentence because for all sorts of reasons, some of them good, some of them bad, most of them a mix of good and bad. For all sorts of reasons, we modern people are constantly bombarded with messages demanding that we do the exact opposite. We are bombarded with messages all day, every day, demanding that we live big, loud lives that are changing the world. You might have, you might have noticed um, that advertisers have caught on to the fact that we all have this, uh, I call it an obsessive guilt and anxiety complex about changing the world. Have you noticed that the advertisers have noticed? And this is why when you see an advertisement for a product nowadays, it is no longer enough to just tell you what the product is and why it's good, but now they have to convince you how this product is making the world a better place, how this product and you buying it will help change the world. The best recent example is probably the uh, New Balance marketing campaign. It was called We Got Now. It was in the last like year. Anybody see the We Got Now commercials? And so what they did in this campaign is they, they New Balance, they teamed up with a clean water nonprofit because you've got to team up with a nonprofit, right? That's number one. Uh, and a lot of young celebrities, that's number two. And the general message seemed to be that young people who wear New Balances, Okay, which is kind of funny, right? Because young people don't wear New Balances. <laughs> we, we are. New Balances for old people. They should be called Old Balances because when you get older, they help you keep your balance. I can't wait to get a pair. I'm very close to getting one. Trust me, not a big deal. But anyways, new pe- old people, new people, young people, young people who wear New Balances. Okay, we'll play along. <laughs> they are people who are aggressively changing the world because, and I quote the commercial here, impatience is a virtue. This is from the great philosopher New Balance. (laughs) Impatience is a virtue. And of course, y'all, wanting to help the world become a better place is a wonderful Christ-like aspiration, obviously. But when the marketing gurus have figured out that using our obsessive guilt and anxiety about changing the world is a good way to get you to buy New Balances, then you know that something is a little weird. I call it activism gone weird. There's a lot of it all over the place. The best description I have come across for this very well-intentioned but almost always misguided guilt and anxiety complex about changing the world and changing it now that so many of us have actually comes from a 19th century Russian novelist named Fyodor Dostoevsky. He is widely considered one of the, if not the greatest novelist of the last few hundred years. And in one of his books, he talks about this desire, most prominent among people who were younger, to do something like sensational, histrionic, world-changing. And he calls this desire the thirst for the immediate deed. You got to write that phrase down. It's a good one. The thirst for the immediate deed. And his point is that many people are more willing to make some singular, spectacular sacrifice or gesture then they are willing to commit to the slow and patient process by which they might become a person who has more to offer the world than a single spectacular gesture. Listen to what he says here. 
He says these young men do not understand that the sacrifice of life is perhaps the easiest of all sacrifices in many cases. While to sacrifice five or six years of their youthful life to hard, difficult studies, to learning in order to increase tenfold their strength to serve the very truth and the very deed that they loved is a sacrifice quite often almost beyond the strength of many of them. God, these people, they're willing to lay down their lives for a spectacular sacrifice, but they are unwilling to become people, slowly but surely, who have more to offer the world than a single spectacular sacrifice. So you got all of us modern people, right? We're all hyped up on guilt and anxiety. We're thirsty for that immediate deed because we think we're called to change the world and change it now. And as a result, we're all running around looking for big things to do because we are too impatient to do the small things that might actually help our little piece of the world become a better place. Are you with me? Two images come to my mind when I think about this understandable but very misguided modern obsession with changing the world and changing it now. Two images come to my mind. Let's get that up on the screen. On the left is a picture of the January 6th Capitol riot. On the right is a picture of the burning of the Minneapolis police station in the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd. Now, to state the obvious, the two people in these pictures, the two groups of people, they believe some very different things about the world, don't they? They believe some very different things about what's wrong with the world. But it seems to me that despite their differences, they're actually united in their very misguided belief that it's their responsibility to change the world and change it now. So beneath the surface differences, y'all, I see the exact same thing here. I see the thirst for the immediate deed. I see people trying to live big, loud lives instead of patient, quiet lives. That's what I see. It didn't receive a lot of attention, but in the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd, former President Barack Obama wrote a really interesting article reflecting on it all. And the thing I found most surprising about the article, especially given that it was written by a former president, you know, and presidents tend to be big people who think big things, big ideas about changing the world, was that there were really no big ideas in the article at all. It it was not filled with big demands to change everything and change it now. Rather, it was an article filled with little ideas instead of big ideas. And his basic premise was, look, there are so many things wrong with the world. So many things wrong with the world. And there is still absolutely injustice in our country. Absolutely. But instead of getting all wrapped up and obsessed with these big meta, global, national politics and arguments, just pay attention to the place where you actually live and try to make it a little bit better. How about that? So instead of, I don't know, instead of storming the Capitol, maybe serve on a school board, man. Maybe that's like, a good first step. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe that was a bunch of school board members storming the Capitol. I do not feel like it was. <laughs> Don't you think that's a fair first step? Just serve on a school board. Instead of firebombing a police station, could coach a little league team. You know, I don't know. I, I, that feels like fair to me. Maybe you coach a little league team. Stop trying to scale Mount Everest in your Speedo when you can't be bothered to walk up your own stairs and teach your kid how to pray. All right. Thank you. And this is why 
you will hear me occasionally. I get up here on my little soapbox, okay? And you know what's coming. And I say, quit obsessing and complaining about national and global politics if you cannot be bothered to participate in local politics, okay? We don't want to hear it. If you can't participate where your feet actually are, then stop obsessing and complaining about national politics. Because whether you're doing it for the right reasons or the wrong reasons, or as is usually the case, a mix of right and wrong reasons, trying to live a big, loud life is unwise and it's unhelpful. It's unhelpful. Because when we try to change the world and change it now, we usually just make things worse. And we definitely make ourselves worse. We make ourselves more anxious, more self-righteous. And so please hear me on this. Your responsibility to the world is not to change the world. Your responsibility to the world is not to change the world. No, your responsibility to the world, according to Jesus, is what? What did Jesus say? To be a good neighbor, right? Isn't that what Jesus said? The greatest commandment, if I have it correctly here, is to be a good neighbor. Now listen, I know that this is going to sound like an irresponsible cop-out to a lot of us. Because we're, we're modern people who we wear our new balances while we change the world. I understand but I think maybe we should hear Jesus out here because it seems like the man knew a thing or two about changing the world. I know he wore sandals instead of new balances, but I feel like Jesus Christ knew a thing or two about changing the world. And I tend to agree with Jesus here because according to my calculations, just about everybody in the world has a neighbor. And so if everybody loved their neighbor, it seems like just about everybody in the world would be loved. And can you think of a better way to change the world than everybody in the world experiencing what it's like to be loved? That brings us back to our text, because after telling us that we can make it our ambition to live quiet lives, Paul then tells us what that might look like. He says, hey, make it your ambition to live a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your own hands, because here's a plan that might actually change the world. Are you ready for this? Here's a plan that might actually change the world. Mind your own business. And do good, simple work with your own hands. Stop running your mouth. Stop being a busybody. Stop thinking you are too good to do good and simple work. Stop trying to change the world for God's sake and just try to be a good neighbor. Have any of you ever tried to love your neighbor? It is very difficult. The task of a lifetime, I promise you. One of my favorite authors is a guy named Wendell Berry. Wendell Berry. I love Wendell Berry. I've mentioned him before. And one of the reasons I love him is that he's this... Hey, look at him. He just looks lovable. I just want to hug him in that sweater. Wood. Uh, he's this world-renowned author and thinker. But he turned down a very prestigious teaching job at NYU to move back to Kentucky and spend the rest of his life working on this really small farm and writing. That's what the man does. And I read him a lot in the early days of the pandemic because like so many of you, I felt this huge anxiety about doing my part to like fix the world and rid the world of COVID. And you remember that anxiety you felt earlier? I got I to help the world. I got to fix the world. I got to rid the world of COVID. But there was really nothing I could do except stay at home, take care of my family, and try to be a good neighbor. That's all I could do. Any of the rest of you feel that anxiety? I wanted to like change the world. I wanted to do my part. But then we were like, what can we do? Well, you can stay at home and hang with your family. It's like, uh, yeah, I don't know. Seems like a lot. Seems like a lot. 
And Barry's writing helped me understand that this profound anxiety and responsibility that I felt for like the world, for fixing the world, for saving the world, it was so silly and so destructive. Because I, I am way too little to be responsible for the world. I mean, y'all, do any of the rest of you ever feel like you struggle to be responsible for yourself and like your household? I mean, I remember having that moment. There's these moments during COVID, you know, in the early, in the early months of the pandemic where I'm, I'm sitting there and I'm thinking in my office, how am I going to change the world? What am I going to do to save the world? Me and my wife, kids are running through the house with baseball bats trying to murder each other. And my wife's like, are you going to help? And I was like, no, I need to save the world. You deal with the kids, right? You deal with the kids. Along those lines, and I think very fitting given that we celebrated child dedication today, Here's one of my favorite quotes from Wendell Berry. Listen to this. This was so liberating to me. He says, A couple who makes a good marriage and raise healthy, morally competent children are serving the world's future more directly and surely than any political leader, though they may never utter a public word. Isn't that good? And this brings me to one of Berry's principles that's become a life principle of sorts for me. He says, reduce your problems to the scale of your competency. Reduce your problems to the scale of your competency. Because the world does need changing. It absolutely does. Okay, but let me help you out here. You are not competent for that task. And most importantly, that's not a failing on your part. That's not you failing to live up to your like potential and responsibility. No, you need to receive this. No, God made you. God designed you so that you were not competent to change the world. How hard is it to get the message? God's like, hey, I made you this big and the world this big. Like, you didn't get the memo. You are not responsible for all this, man. You try to be responsible for yourself and your family. Good luck with that. And there are all sorts of great and wise reasons why God did this. Read the Tower of Babel story. And there's so much freedom and liberation found when we just embrace God's design instead of resist and resent it. I was talking to a really good friend of mine um, a couple of years ago. And I asked him for some constructive feedback. You know, something I could, could work on and do better. Now, this friend is not one of those people who really enjoys giving constructive feedback. I know some of you do. If I walked up and I said, hey, what's something I could work on? You would go, I have a list. You know, I was just waiting. The day you came up to me, it's very long. How much time do you have? He's not one of those people. And so I had to beg him and badger him to tell me something to work on. And so finally he relented and he said, well, I think there might be some times where people can tell that you are accustomed to talking and expecting others to listen to you. And I was like, that is ridiculous. Where in my life would I have grown accustomed to talking while other people listen to me? You don't get the joke? Okay. (laughs) So we're not friends anymore. Um, Kicked him out of my life. No, he was right. And I still don't think I'm very good at it, but ever since that conversation two years ago... I have tried to make it my ambition to live a life that's just a little bit quieter. And maybe, just hear me out, maybe, just maybe, you should too. We're going to watch a video now of my friend Chad Green. He's a celebrity. He's sitting right there. 
Chad, I knew Chad in college. Uh, he was a wild man, and it's so cool to see how God has got a hold of Chad's life. And he has a really cool story about what it looks like to stop telling yourself that you're responsible for the whole world and just learn how to be faithfully responsible for that little piece of the world that you actually inhabit. Okay, so we're going to check this video out. When you get that feeling like you want to change the world, I think that's a good thing. And you should pay attention to that. You should study that. Uh, learn about it. But don't spend all of your time and energy just learning about something. I think it's important to, uh, to actually start doing some things. Um, I think it's very common with, with everything that's going on in the world. It's, it's overwhelming. There's so much going on. Um, and then whenever you do actually catch up on everything, it's super depressing. And you don't know where to start. So they end up doing nothing. Um, I was fortunate enough a few years ago, I had a friend who was able to point out some blind spots uh, that I had. I wanted to create this big thing that's gonna change you know, uh, the city of Belton and it was gonna be this huge project. And he was able to uh, really humble me, which I needed, and, uh, and help me realize that um, Belton's not waiting on me to save it. Uh, that there, these problems have existed and, uh, and there are already people that are working to help so it was great to have that person who was able to say, you know what, they don't need you to do that, but why don't you just go see what you can do to help? And so I was able to go and find um, these organizations and these people and just ask, what can I do to help? Um, and that has been life-changing for me. Throughout the years, uh, I've learned through For the City event, like just how many great organizations there are here in Belton and Temple and Colleen that have been helping people for years and years and years and, and I didn't even know that they existed or what they did. Um, so it was so good for me to be able to, instead of carrying like this burden and all this weight on my shoulders about thinking, how am I gonna, how am I gonna fix this issue? Just let it go and go help and go serve. And what am I good at? And try to use my skills and abilities to benefit my neighbors and go love my neighbors. And that has just been life-changing for me. And I love that, and I think it's so well said. Take this weight of the world's burdens off your shoulders. It's, it's not yours to bear. And just try to be a good neighbor. Just try to be a good neighbor.